This is Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi, two of the top web bloggers in the legal profession. And yes, they are attorneys, one from California and one from Massachusetts, squaring off on legal news and legal observations. Lawyer to Lawyer is sponsored by Law.com, right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. We're glad you could join us today. This is Bob Ambrogi coming to you from Massachusetts. And I'm Craig Williams from Southern California. I'm coming to you today from Legal Tech West Coast in Los Angeles. And, Bob, I am just honored to be here with you. (laughs) You just had to say that, Craig. Uh, Craig, how is Legal Tech this year? How's it looking? It's pretty full of uh, vendors, although not as big as the New York uh, production. And uh, lots of e-discovery. And if you check out my blog, May It Please the Court, you'll see an interesting possibility about no more spam. Well, very good. I look forward to reading that. Well, uh, today we're going to talk about uh, the indictments last week of Ralph Chiaffi and Matthew Tannen, both uh, former hedge fund managers for Bear Stearns, one of the largest global investment banks and securities trading and brokerage firms. Uh, They surrendered to federal agents and were charged with nine counts of securities, mail, and wire fraud. Their indictment stems from the poor state of the mortgage market starting back from the spring of 2007 when they allegedly shared their growing fears in a series of email messages to each other about the dreadful condition of the giant hedge funds they oversaw. Uh, the indictment claims that instead of sharing this information with their investors, uh, the pair allegedly painted a positive picture to worried investors without disclosing that their two funds were plummeting in value and that Mr. Chiaffi had allegedly already pulled some assets from one of them. About a month later, Bear Stearns came crashing down. Well, Bob, today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we're going to get some background on the Bear Stearns scandal, look into the criminal charges against the ex-managers, the state of the mortgage market, the evidence in their email correspondence, and we're going to tackle the topic of white-collar crime and look at what criminally can happen to these once very successful fund managers. And to help us do that today is a guest who is an expert in white-collar criminal issues. He is Rich Strasberg, a partner in Goodwin Proctor's litigation department and chair of its white-collar crime and government investigations practice. He specializes in white-collar criminal defense, corporate internal investigations, corporate regulatory practice, and complex business and financial litigation. Prior to joining Goodwin Proctor, Mr. Strasburg was chief of the major crimes unit in the U.S. Attorney's Office in the Southern District of New York, where he was responsible for supervising some 25 assistant U.S. attorneys in the prosecution of white-collar criminal cases. He represents individuals and entities and almost uh, uh, he has represented individuals and entities in in, in many of the major white-collar cases that have uh, come down over the last couple of years, including the KPMG tax fraud case, U.S. v. Stein, uh, in which he represented a former KPMG partner, uh, the the Martha Stewart case, in which he represented Peter Bakanovic, Ms. Stewart's former Merrill Lynch financial advisor, And also, uh, he played a role in the Enron investigation representing a banker from a large international financial institution involved in structuring off-balance sheet transactions with Enron. Uh, Thank you for joining us today, Rich Strasberg. Oh, uh, thank you for having me, uh, guys. It's uh, wonderful to be here. Well, Rich, you've uh, worked on some, obviously, as Bob has said, some pretty high-profile criminal cases. So give us a little bit of background before we delve into Bear Stearns so that uh, we can a little understand a little bit more about the kinds of things that you do. 
Well, sure. Uh, my practice is focused on white-collar criminal defense, uh, as uh, Bob was uh, mentioning, and um, and that practice focused on uh, both helping clients uh, of a corporate nature, uh, companies that uh, have internal investigations uh, where they're uh, trying to find out if wrongdoing has occurred inside the company, companies who um, have to respond to inquiries, subpoenas, and the like from regulators or from prosecutors, and also representing individuals who are caught up in uh, these kinds of complex financial um, investigations, uh, often uh, that uh, will implicate more than one prosecutor or regulator. It's very common, as is the case with Bear Stearns, where um, you'll have a prosecutor's office looking at conduct. You'll have the SEC looking at conduct. You may have some state uh, regulators looking at the same conduct, and then you'll also have the plaintiff's bar filing some civil cases um, seeking to collect some money about that same conduct, and uh, my practice helps uh, clients handle uh, and respond to all of those aspects of the case. And Rich, tell us, uh, from your perspective, what, what are the what are the allegations here? What is, what's 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 the criminality that's that's alleged to have occurred here uh, with these two uh, former Bear Stearns? Well, sure. If you want to boil it down, and in fact, what I think um, the government will do if and when they get to trial and they're before a jury, they will in fact boil it down. And I'd predict that you would hear within the first two sentences of the government's opening to the jury about this case, them say this case is all about lies. And uh, that's what, the, from the government's perspective, this is a case, very simply, where people spoke to their investors and they lied to them. Everyone knows you're not allowed to lie. You've been taught that since you were a little child. And uh, the securities laws make it a crime to lie in connection with um, the purchase and sale of uh, investments and securities. And that's the nature of the case that they brought uh, against these two hedge fund managers. Well, obviously, the subprime market crisis is much bigger than the two of these guys. Uh, do you think that the the government is using them initially as scapegoats? Well, uh, you know, I think we the law is to the um, to the effect that you can't lie. But I think what happens in um, instances where you have a crisis, as we've had in the mortgage market, is there becomes a tremendous pressure on prosecutors and regulators to show that they are taking some action that um, heads are rolling. And so that always presents a danger that uh, individuals are being singled out unfairly to take the blame for something that is much bigger than anything that they did. It reminds me a little bit of Charles Keating. Sure. And, of course, the, you know, the facts here matter a lot, but it certainly is, a, is, an, uh, is an area of concern where um, – a crisis has occurred, and there is such calls for action that uh, the prosecutors don't jump to, you know, show that they're taking action, and in the uh, course of that, wind up charging people who really didn't have the criminal intent to do something that was criminally um, uh, criminally wrong. A lot of attention has been played to the uh, has been uh, given to the role that uh, email played in this case, and, and uh, particularly email messages. Uh, between these two and some others. Can you talk a little bit about uh, that? Sure. I would say that uh, really since the um, Enron case, we've seen an explosion of 
um, large white-collar investigations across many, many different industries. And the one um, piece that's united uh, pretty much all of those cases is that the email chains um, uh, have provided a, a roadmap and often the key pieces of evidence for the government to make the cases uh, that they have made uh, and to convict the people criminally of, of committing securities fraud and other types of fraud. And um, even though we've seen you know cases from the Arthur Anderson case onward where the emails really were the, the key, people still um, have a tendency to treat emails like they would treat an informal telephone conversation with a with a friend and emails um, stay around with us pretty much forever uh, and when they are looked at with the um, glaze of a prosecutor's view where there's been trouble like a mortgage crisis for example and a and a tremendous loss in value in a fund um, you know they can they can certainly take on meanings that the person who wrote the emails may not have intended at the time they were written well, and that's part of their defenses. And I mean, they're saying that to some extent, uh, or at least what's been said is, is that possibly some of these messages are being taken out of context. But is there a is there a smoking gun, or are there a, a few smoking gun emails among these that are being talked about? Well, I think that what you saw in the indictment was the government really attempting to um, put forth the the strong pieces of evidence from the emails that it has. And so, you know, the, the the day the charges come and the indictment gets filed is definitely a day that the government has its say um, and puts forward its version of what happened. The um, individuals and their lawyers um, are the ones in the best position to know if there is um, a strong defense to those charges. But there's almost always another side because the government is not putting forth both sides, it's putting forth its side at the time of the indictment. So there's almost uh, certainly another side, and part of that I'm sure will be that there is more context to the emails, that the emails only show a part of a conversation that's uh, reflecting some concerns, but there may have been other conversations that reflected the response to those concerns so that... um, at the end of the day, they're going to be arguing they didn't lie when they spoke to investors and said, hey, we think we're, we're okay and our fund will be okay. What types of uh, obligations do those two fund managers owe to their investors in terms of telling them what they think? Well, that's a, it's a, it's a great question. I think the, um, the legal standards in the securities uh, field have developed so that you may not have an obligation to tell people what you think as a general matter, but once you start to talk to them, you have to be very careful that the things you say uh, are not going to be materially misleading, is the legal term of art. Um, but in essence, it's it's you have to be very careful practically to to be sure that you know some prosecutor in the future is not going to say, hey, you you should have said something more because what you said. Um, was materially misleading, and therefore I think you've committed a crime. So it's not really an obligation to speak, but when you speak, to speak truthfully. That's right. I mean, there are some reporting obligations and the like, but as a general matter, you don't have to um, get on the calls and have calls with investors. You don't have to give them your view. You can not speak to them at all. You can um, speak in very, very truncated manners. Um, that's not something that's really encouraged by the um, the broad 
investment community because investors want to get information. They want to understand uh, what their advisors are thinking. Um, but uh, there's no requirement for the advisors to, to do that. Practically, uh, of course, people um, often feel that they need to just because of the competitive environment out there. But there's no requirement as a general matter. The securities laws have uh, requirements on particular written filings and the like. But the law also requires that once you speak, the things you say not be materially misleading, and that means you sort of intentionally intend to mislead uh, your, your investors, the people that you're speaking to. You gave us the first two lines of what you thought the prosecutors would do in their opening statement. Put yourself on the defense side. What are your first two lines? Um, you know, sh- sure. I think on the defense side, um, you're going to hear about this being an instance of um, prosecutors rushing to judgment in order to attempt to show progress in um, appeasing the public about the large mortgage crisis. And rushing to judgment by taking emails out of context and what the defense will attempt to do is give the context to show that at the time these individuals weren't lying they were trying to do the best they could in an incredibly uncertain environment to both um, uh, navigate their funds through it successfully and also you know share with their investors um, what they thought was going to happen I think they would also talk about the fact that everyone, all investors understand that the fund manager is not going to be there saying my fund is horrible or my fund is terrible. And so people understood the things they were saying with the um, with the knowledge that these guys are committed and interested and, and have their own interests connected to the funds. You're not going to expect to hear them really be bad-mouthing the funds. And so we're not going to be misled by things they say that are um, a little bit rosy about the industry and the like. Are there either defenses or, or uh, 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 I guess, incriminating points to be made about the way the way these two used email? I, I mean, I understand that to some extent uh, they were using personal email accounts. Uh, I think in a, the allegations were that in a couple instances uh, one was sending to the email account of the other's wife. Uh, uh, is... Is that evidence one way or the other uh, of uh, proving the crimes that are alleged here? Sure, it, it can be. And uh, you know, as a general matter, it's evidence you know, for the prosecution to prove the crimes. The key part the prosecution has to prove, as I mentioned, they're going to argue it's lies. But lies mean more than that it was just wrong. We kind of all know now with the benefit of hindsight and, and all of the uh, the losses that have happened, that they were wrong about anything positive they said, but that they knew it was wrong at the time, that they intended to mislead. And to prove that part of intent, you want to look for things like um, them acting secretively, them acting in ways that suggest they knew what they were doing was not correct and they were trying to hide it. And so any proof that suggests that they were acting secretly, for example, is is good proof for the prosecution. I'm sure the defense will try to blunt that by um, by giving alternative reasons why they were um, why they were using things like personal email um, that were not because it was that they thought something was wrong with what they were doing, but perhaps because for some reason they didn't want people at the organization to know about their thoughts, for example. Isn't it amazing that they were saying these kinds of things in email at all? I mean, what, what's your reaction to that as a defense lawyer? What do you, how do you counsel your clients about the use of email? 
Um, we've, you know, we've seen this again and again. People, um, uh, they are so f- comfortable with email that they just uh, lose sight of the fact that email stays around forever and that uh, it really, um, you know, can take on a life of its own if there's ever a problem. Um, and, the, you know, the reality is that people are going to use email. Things are going to be in uh, emails um, uh, and you know, it's we try to make sure people are sensitized to it when we're counseling them and, and involved with them, and and uh, um, and use it as a as a way to to drive home the importance of really thinking through the actions that you're taking because there's going to be a trail, um, and you want to be able to defend yourself uh, if some uh, person in the in the future starts to question what it is that you've done. One of the elements of a criminal prosecution, at least at the end of it, involves some victim restitution. What's the chances that the Bear Stearns investors are ever going to see any money out of these losses? Yeah, that's uh, you know uh, that's that's a that's a hard one. You know, with the with the merger and the like, it gets sort of um, complicated as to where the the um, where the buck stops. I think the it's unlikely there's going to be. Um, uh, uh, substantial restitution, sort of dollar for dollar, given the the substantial losses that both of those funds suffered. How do you value or look at the issue of investors being recompensed for anything, given that they know that they're in a hedge fund, which is risky? Yeah, that's part. You know, it's part of the ongoing debate that's happening now, as not just these funds, but you know the the, the various um, investments in the market. Um, Kind of readjust to the new credit conditions, um, and you know I think it's um, it's fair to say that people who are um, involved in aggressive investments un- should understand that those are risky investments, and you get uh, the potential for high returns. It means it comes along with the potential to lose your investment, and if that happens, you shouldn't be able to rewrite the rules just because you don't like uh, the outcome. Uh, on the other hand, you know, to the extent there is merit to these allegations and investors were deceived to keep their money in and the like, um, uh, then there's, there's, there is more of a uh, substance to the idea that they should somehow um, be compensated. There, there's been criticism of the SEC in all of this in that it had investigated Bear Stearns uh, a few years back and uh, – Essentially concluded the investigation without taking any any action. Uh, should the SEC have done more here earlier on? Might it have been able to to forestall this uh, at an earlier point before everything fell apart? Pretty much. Yeah, you know, I'm not familiar with what uh, what the SEC did in the past, so really kind of impossible to say as to what they might have been able to um, to anticipate back then. And there's really not a whole lot of sympathy for the investors and the fund managers and the general public because they all look at it as if, you know, you knew what you were getting into. You knew that you were giving loans to people that couldn't possibly uh, or at least should have known or should have done more investigation. Do you think that's going to play any part of the defense in this case? Well, I think it it presents a a challenge for the defense in that, um, you know, I think you are right that in a typical jury, there may be little sympathy 
um, for hedge fund managers in general, regardless of what the underlying facts are. And that's always a, a challenge in a criminal case where at the end of the day, uh, a jury of 12 is going to decide um, whose version of what happened is actually correct. And is it the government's version that these were lies or is it the defense version that it was um, just honest mistakes? Um, and to the extent people are biased against um, uh, hedge fund managers, people involved in the financial industry and the mortgage uh, area, then you've got a uh, you've got a substantial hurdle you have to over- overcome for the defense. Well, we need to take a short break. When we return, we'll talk more about Bear Stearns and the future of these two ex-managers we've been discussing. Lawyer to Lawyer is produced by the Legal Talk Network and a staff of broadcast professionals. If you have an idea for a topic or a show, we want to hear from you. Go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and send us an email. Check out our Lawyer to Lawyer host blogs, J. Craig Williams' blog at MayHavePleaseTheCourt.com, likewise Robert Ambrogi's blog at LegalLine.com for daily legal observations, perspective, and, of course, a healthy dose of humor and wit. If you have a comment or question, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message on the Legal Talk Network listener line at 781-634-8959. We really do listen to the messages and even answer your questions on our next show. A video settlement documentary can be the most powerful and persuasive way to bring about a speedy settlement in your client's case. The Boston Media Group has a staff of television professionals with 20 years' experience writing and producing compelling stories just like the ones you've seen on 60 Minutes or Dateline. We put a human face on the lawsuit with compelling interviews, dramatizations, and visual presentations of the fact. Think of it as a video opening argument that will compel the attorneys on the other side to settle. Call us for a consult at 800-317-5221. That's 800-317-5221. Or check out our website at bostonmediagroup.com. And welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Bob Ambrogi. uh, And we are talking to attorney Rich Strasberg, a partner in Goodwin Proctor's litigation department and chair of its white-collar crime and government investigations practice. Rich, uh, You've been on kind of both sides of the coin here. You're a former prosecutor, and, and you uh, now defend clients in, in white-collar matters. Do, do you see uh, a larger context here? Is this a, a tip of an iceberg, or are we going to see more of these indictments coming down along similar lines? Well, I think that the government's looking very hard um, at everything connected to um, uh, the mortgage um, investments and um, the financial industry. I think we've, um, you know, been in a, in a time where uh, white collar prosecutions are very aggressively sought by, um, uh, you know, by the government, and that's been the um, um, been the case certainly since the um, Enron. Um, case hit now some six or so, seven years ago. Um, so uh, I do think there's going to be a lot of focus, whether in fact there'll be a series of other cases, though, um, uh, is too soon to tell. And we talked before the break about the jury's perception in this case, um, and you said that you don't think that a jury's going to have any sympathy for the fund managers. Uh, and the government 
is essentially, in this instance, representing the investors. It doesn't seem like the jury is going to have any sympathy for the investors either. That that um, that may be, but um, uh, from the government's point of view, uh, their goal is to try to convince the um, the jury that uh, these two fund managers were lying um, when they spoke, and um, and less significant whether the investors are so sympathetic or not. I think, and of course, the stakes are so high for individuals charged with a criminal offense who are facing, you know, potentially years and years in uh, federal prison. That uh, you know, having having jurors kind of come in there predisposed to be a little hostile um, uh, to people who do your job is a pretty daunting um, uh, factor to have to face. Rich, do you get? I don't know whether any of your clients uh, are picking up the phone and calling you and saying, uh, what should we make of this? Uh, but I mean, as we face this, this, this mortgage mess that, that continues, uh, is there, you know, is, is it too late to be advising clients or what are you telling your clients now about how they should be, uh, uh, you know, preparing themselves, defending themselves, uh, uh, proceeding uh, to, you know, protect themselves against uh, prosecutions of, of, of their own. Well, I think, you know, you can't be too vigilant in all of your communications, written and oral, with uh, investors or shareholders uh, and the like, depending on the nature of your, your business. And so, um, you know, the sophisticated uh, clientele who have to interact with uh, shareholders and investors understand that and make sure that the comments that are going to be made are vetted beforehand and afterwards by numerous parties, including legal counsel, so that, um, you know, they can take comfort that even if challenged, because you never know what's going to happen in the future. And so if things turn south in your area um, because the economy changes, because some event happens that wasn't foreseen, you want to make sure that you're able to defend and you have um, others who can legally defend um, any comments that were made against the challenge by some regulator or some prosecutor that, aha, maybe you were intending to try to um, deceive uh, your shareholders or your investors. What's your sense of that? I mean, are clients, are business, businesses concerned about these indictments? Are they, are they calling you? Are they talking about it among themselves? Oh, I, I think, I think so. I think that, um, people are concerned. People are, um, uh, you know, worried in, in the business community about, um, the relevant prevalence of the criminal case, um, that appears, um, uh, that appears to occur after each of the crises happen. Um, and, uh, you know, in, the, in this mortgage crisis, the Bear Stearns case is sort of the, the beginning, and whether there will be more or whether this will be sort of a lone criminal case is, is still to be seen. But I think it does send um, uh, shivers up the, the spines of a lot of um, corporate executives and uh, sophisticated financial professionals uh, about what can happen and how, you know, what were tremendously successful careers and people who would have viewed themselves as law-abiding and tremendously successful individuals now face uh, the prospect of, uh, of ending their career by going to, to federal prison. What what do they face? What are the, what are the uh, possible uh, penalties that they face? The penalties are, are substantial. Uh, federal securities um, uh, 
counts can carry with them um, 10 to 20 years imprisonment for each count. Um, there are a series of counts in the indictment against the Bear Stearns uh, executives, and uh, you can you can stack them on top of each other to get an incredibly high number. The reality is that the number would be less, but but can be can be substantial. It's not unusual for um, people involved in cases with losses that are as high as what's alleged the losses were here for these funds to face, you know, around 10 years in prison. Um, and that's a lot of time. How are these guys going to pay for their defense? Are there, is there current, uh, or the new company coming in, are they going to be defending them? Are they looking to insurance? Or are they looking at just digging into their own pockets? Yeah, I, I don't know the answer to that. Uh, that's so very specific to the individual case. Well, typically, insurance won't cover criminal defenses, will it? You know, it depends on the policy. Some insurances will cover the case. You know, they'll they often, depending on how it's written, the coverage might um, apply uh, unless and until there was there would be a uh, a verdict by the uh, uh, by the jury that someone was guilty, following the principle of you're innocent until proven guilty. I mean, right now they're innocent. There's only been an allegation against them. But some coverage, uh, some insurance coverage might not be as broad. So, um, again, very, very specific to um, the individual facts of a case. Right, and we should be clear that the, that both of them uh, did plead not guilty uh, at their uh, arraignment last week. And uh, the I, I've I've also read that there is a is a possibility of new charges being brought against these two pertaining to their relationships with banks uh, as opposed to investors. Um, do, do you know anything about that? Have you heard anything about that? Yeah, I, I don't. I don't know anything about that. I'm not involved in the case, and that's what gives me the freedom to uh, um, to chat <laughs> to with talk, you about it. Yeah. Do you think there's any possibility that uh, some lawyers or accountants may be staring down some uh, allegations from the SEC or some prosecutors? Well, I'll say this. I think that you know the SEC and, and other prosecutors are looking very closely at um, at the the activities that happened connected to the mortgage uh, area, uh, and you know whether that results in charges or not uh, is impossible to tell. You know, I've been involved in counseling many clients through very um, serious uh, investigations with uh, the SEC and other regulatory bodies, where at the end of the day there are no charges that get filed. So you do a lot of work and you work hard to convince the regulators that there really wasn't any uh, wrongdoing done by people at the institution. Uh, and that's uh, and so a, a, uh, a sanction against the company would be uh, inappropriate. And if you can be successful in that, then the public uh, uh, as a whole never knows that the investigation even occurred. Um, of course, if you're not successful and they move forward with the charges, that's what everyone sees the um, the charges be filed or the substantial settlement um, uh, be given to the SEC or the other regulator. Yeah, well, certainly those institutions are going to have deeper pockets on these two guys. And I'm sure that's right. Well, we've just about reached the end of our program, Rich, so it's time to uh, wrap up, get your final thoughts, and uh, get your contact information for our listeners. So if you would, please. Sure. I, I would I would say this, that um, uh, I think it's always helpful to keep in mind that the indictment uh, and the arrests that happen are really the government's uh, day where they get to say their version of what happened. You know, if this case goes on to trial, at the trial, the defense will get their opportunity to try to uh, put that in context and explain why um, uh, maybe they didn't commit these crimes. And until that, uh, I'd urge people to hold out and, and keep an open mind about uh, what it is that actually 
actually did happen in connection with this Bear Stearns Fund. And, you know, as was mentioned, I'm at Goodwin Proctor in New York, and uh, my email is rstrasberg, R-S-T-R-A-S-S-B-E-R-G, at Goodwin Proctor, G-O-O-D-W-I-N-P-R-O-C-T-E-R.com, and I'm at 212-813-8859. Well, Richard Strasberg, thank you very much for taking the time to be with us today. You've uh, shed a lot of light on what's going on here. That about does it for Lawyer to Lawyer for today. I'd like to remind our listeners that they can always check out all of our programs, current and past, at www.legaltalknetwork.com. And I'd like to extend a very special thanks to Rich, too, for being with us today. Uh, and you can see our things on iTunes. And, Craig, I look forward to hearing uh, uh, the program that you'll be recording at uh, Tech Show. Uh, and uh, that will also be available through Legal Talk Network. Bye, everybody. Good to talk to you. Bye. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network. Lawyer to Lawyer has been sponsored by Law.com. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.